Matthew 15, 29 through 39. Jesus went on up, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. Then they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. As we come into this last passage in Matthew 15, we remember that last week we considered... Jesus having uh, healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman, and there were some tests of faith along the way. And now it seems they've departed from there, that region of Tyre and Sidon where they were, and they've traveled to what seems likely to be the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and one that was predominantly Gentile. And it's, it's possible, it's probable that Jesus, we know that he's been continuing to seek uh, to be in a place where the Jewish religious leaders are not likely to go. Uh, we saw at the beginning of chapter 15 uh, that they were taking issue with traditions and commandments, what defiles a person. Uh, and Jesus, in leaving, perhaps wants to get away from some of the conspiring that's taking place. Perhaps he's still wanting to find some rest with just he and his disciples. And we see that this woman has followed them, and he heals her daughter, tests her faith in the process. And now he's gone on from there, and we see even once again in Gentile lands, predominantly Gentile lands, that he can't be hidden. And we see this, it goes back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, it says, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. Mark tells us that that's the region they were in. It literally means ten cities. And we know the Greek influence because that's, that's from the Greek. And so these great crowds had followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So he was known there, though he didn't do most of his work there. And perhaps as he went on this walk, which would be a, a substantial walk from almost the shore of the, of, the sea of, of the Mediterranean Sea to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, perhaps he wanted some time to teach his disciples one-on-one, -on -one, to seek some rest as they travel. We don't know what they talked about as they made that walk, no doubt. There was some talking, some teaching that took place. But we do know of this event that took place at the end of their travel. We know that because once this is accomplished, they go back across the sea to this region of Magadan, which it's an unknown region. Uh, we think it's probably around Dalmanutha or Magdala. Sometimes people think that's about the area that it was in. But it's, it's unknown for sure where this is, but it's back on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. But what we see taking place here, and what we saw last week, is the expansion of Jesus' ministry to beyond just the people of Israel, 
We know that it's going to expand in a much greater way. But here we get a foretaste. We get, we get to see just a little bit of it because here's the place that Jesus himself is teaching and healing and feeding Gentile people, revealing that reality that Matthew's been hinting at from the time that he recorded the genealogy at the beginning to the commission that comes at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we know that there's been this. Jesus' predominant mission, he made clear last week, was to the lost sheep of Israel, yet we know that he didn't turn any away that came to him. We see here another record of a miraculous feeding. In Matthew 14, we read of the feeding of the 5,000. In Matthew 15, we read about the feeding of the 4,000. And some, some have sought to cast some doubt on this account. Uh, Daniel Doriani, a commentator on the text, um, he says critics sometimes assert that there was only one miraculous feeding and that the evangelists, aware of slightly differing accounts, erroneously thought there were two events. Anti-supernaturalists, those that are opposed to any supernatural thing within the Bible, will call both accounts fictions, fabrications, made up by the authors. Others propose that Matthew has invented the second miracle. They'll grant the reality of the first, but the second one, Matthew just wanted to, you know, wanted to double up to be a little more convincing. Uh, they propose that Matthew's invented the second miracle for theological reasons. But the problem is with the, that would compromise the credibility of the Gospels. They'd be irreparably damaged if the writers created fictions. They'd be justly discredited if they published stories of stupendous public miracles that no one could recall. And the thing is, people did. These are eyewitness accounts that these were recalled. When we look at the facts of it, uh, between the 5,000 and 4,000, we see a number of different numbers. We see different words that come up that really help to indicate that these are eyewitness accounts, that indeed these are two, and we'd be confident these are two different events. And as we look at that, and as we consider this healing of many, of this feeding of the 4,000, we see once again, no matter where Jesus went, crowds followed. Crowds showed up. These crowds come to him, and what we see going on here in a largely Gentile place, we see the king and the healer doing what a good king and a healer does. We see the king kinging. We see the healer healing. We see the bread of life feeding. We see him acting with compassion, and we see the truth that Jesus Christ is for all people. Now, a question might come up as we read this. I mean, it seems like he made that Canaanite woman really work for it, didn't he? I mean, like, those, those three, that, that, the test of silence for her faith, the test of, of, of rejection, and the test of insult, which were tests of her faith. And then he grants this, he heals her daughter. And then here it seems like they just bring people and he's just healing everybody. And like, what's the difference? I don't know why he did it differently with that. Why did he call you into his kingdom differently than he did someone else? I'm gonna, I'll, I'll allow Christ to work in the way that he works. And in one case, for the faith of this one woman, he works that way. And in this other case, for the faith of these that are here, he works in this way. That's the wonder of our God. He's not limited by any particular means. He's not limited by any particular way of doing things. What we do know is that in every way that he works, he works for the good of his people and for his glory. And here we see the wonder of these Gentiles that are receiving of the abundance 
that Christ came to bring. And so when we look at this, it says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Well, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Matthew's used this phrase, a very similar phrase before, back in chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he goes up onto this mountain, which brings up this comparison to when Moses ascends the mountain. But here he's in a Gentile land, and it's interesting that he's doing the same thing. He goes up on a mountain, and he sits down there. And this is the posture of teaching. And so it seems that Jesus comes, and he takes this position of the teacher, and as we know that there was healing that would take place, it seems likely that there's teaching and healing that's mixed together with this because of the position that he takes. The wonder of this Jewish rabbi teaching a largely Gentile people. And so he teaches them, and that, that, should, that should bring us joy because we who are gathered here this morning, what are we? In the context of the Bible, we're Gentile people. We're Gentile people who have been brought into the people of God by Christ, being taught by him. The wonder that Christ is for all people. But it's interesting that these Gentile people, we see them doing what we've seen Jewish people doing throughout the Gospel of Matthew. What do they do? They come and they bring. There's great crowds that have come, and they bring. And what are they? Who are they bringing with them? All their sick. When we read through the list, who do we see coming? It says that great crowds came to him, and they didn't come alone. They brought with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet. And he healed them. And so as they come, we know that they don't come alone. They're bringing people with them. The connection to us should be simple, right? Who do we bring along with us? Do we bring others with us? Because we know who we confess Christ to be. But here's these Gentile people bringing these others with them. And it's a great crowd with even more. And what they're bringing are those that are injured, those that are sick. And what does he do? He does what he's always done. He healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. So as they brought their sickest and their most needy to this one who came to heal those that were sick, to renew that which was broken and lost, we see that they're bringing the sickest and the most needy. They're now bringing the best and the brightest. It's not that the best and the brightest don't need Christ. They do. But who they're bringing are those that Christ said, the well don't need a doctor. Who need a doctor? Those who are sick. And so these Gentiles, they get something that, that maybe some of the others that Jesus has been around don't understand. Like these are the people that he's calling to him so that what? So that he might do what he came to do. And in this list, we see him doing things that no one else could do, the greatest of which is the blind seeing. Consistently throughout the Bible, the only one who can bring sight to blind eyes is who? God. There's no Old Testament prophet that restored sight to the blind. They talked about God who gives sight to the blind. And so this one who's there among these people, what is he doing? He's doing what only God can do, which bears witness to the reality of who is this. And we return to the beginning of Matthew. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And he's restoring sight to even who? Even those 
who are outside of the people of Israel. Again, a preview of what's to come. It also sounds like as he does this, it sounds like Isaiah 35. And if you look back at Isaiah 35, we hear the wonder of this Savior, of this one who is to come. We know that the place they were in was desolate, and Isaiah 35 starts with, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Who are these people seeing in this desolate place, in this wilderness? Jesus Christ is the glory of the Lord. He's the majesty of God. And what's he doing? We continue reading. It says, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. He healed the crippled. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Again, we meet people that are being brought to him and set at his feet. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Look at the fruitfulness of this desolate place, and the fruitfulness isn't isn't fruit and flowers, it's people being made whole. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and the highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness, the unclean shall not pass over it. Remember, the context of this chapter has been what defiles a person. And who's bringing healing and cleanliness and purity but Christ himself? It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What do you think was fleeing away as that crippled one was brought to him and made whole? Do you think there was joy and singing among those people? Do you think their sorrow was fleeing away? Because what did they do? They got it. They brought and they put at his feet. They brought them to see who? Him. They got what the disciples were a little fuzzy on last week, right? They said, send her away because she's crying out after us. But her cry was what? Have mercy on me, son of David. She wasn't talking to them. She was talking to him. And here this crowd comes, and they're putting them at the feet of Christ. What every disciple, what every follower of Christ is to do is what these people were doing. Put them, whoever they are, at the feet of Christ. Because he's the one who heals. You might be the tool in the hand, but he's the one that heals. They bring them and put them at the feet of Christ. Whoever we would bring to Christ is in the same condition as these people. Here we have a list of physical maladies. 
the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet. Whoever we would bring to Christ is in the same condition, whether physically or spiritually. And they need to know his presence and his touch, his ability to heal all that there is. That doesn't mean that he'll necessarily do it in a moment. It could be the rest of their lives and the greatest healing they ever get, any of us ever get, is when we'll be welcomed into his presence. But that healing starts at his feet, and it starts in this life. The effect upon the people is that the crowd wondered. They were amazed. The word is thaumatso. It's really interesting. It's used 31 times in the gospel, and not nearly as much anywhere else. It's almost as though what we're supposed to wonder at, and I'll say not almost, it's that it's we are supposed to wonder at who? Christ. At the one who is God with us and what he is doing among them and what he continues to do. It's used seven times in Matthew. In chapter 8, verse 10, it's Jesus' response to the Roman centurion's faith. Wondered, because he hadn't seen that kind of faith anywhere in Israel. In 8.27, it's the disciples in the boat when he says, Hey, wind, quiet down. Hey, we, waves, settle out. And they're like wondering, what manner of man is this? In 9.33, it's the response of the people as he's cast out a demon, and they wonder, could this be the son of David? It'll come up again. It comes up here with their response to seeing him do all that he did. In chapter 21, verse 20, it's the disciples wondering that as they'd heard Jesus tell this fig tree, never will any fruit come from you again. And it was wilted the next time they came by. There was wonder on their part. In chapter 22, 22, it's the people that heard him teach about taxes and who we're supposed to give things to. He said, what inscription is on this? What image is on it? Caesar's will render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render unto God the things that are God's. And the people wondered at his teaching because he what, just, what he just told them is that money in your pocket, you see the image, give that to men, whatever. But whose image do you bear? So give that unto God. And the wondering was on their part. And then in 2714, it's the word that's used of Pilate's reaction to Jesus' silence in his presence, that he would not answer him a word. And Pilate wondered because he didn't understand. But here's the people wondering, wondering in response to what they've seen. The crowd wondered when they saw, well, they saw the impossible being done, the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. What they are seeing is they're seeing a preview and the outbreak of heaven. Because what's taking place here? The king is kinging and the healer is healing. In Revelation 21.4 we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What has passed away in his presence as they are there with him? All of those things. They're getting a preview of heaven. 
Because what he's done is he set all of those things to rights. And we understand that every physical healing that we encounter in Scripture is a picture of the greater healing that is to come. But what he's done is he's put those things to flight. And their response is to glorify the God of Israel. And here's our best evidence that this is a Gentile crowd, the reference to God of Israel. Jews could speak of God this way, but it's more likely that Gentiles would say such things as the Jewish crowds in Matthew don't use this title anywhere else. Also, Mark places the event in the Decapolis. But there's something else, too. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how the people responded? They were astonished, because why? He taught, not as their teachers taught. But it doesn't say anything about them doing what? Glorifying God. They were astonished. But it doesn't say anything about that. Think about what has been seen so far among the Israelite people as Jesus moves along them and about them and among them. Remember what he said to Chorazin and Bethsaida? He said, whoa. Because if Tyre and Sidon had seen the things that you've seen, they would have repented long ago in dust and ashes. So they hadn't responded. How? In a way that glorifies God. They hadn't given glory to God. They'd sat and they said, could this be the son of David? They're on the right track. I mean, give them credit for that. Could this be the son of David? Well, good. But the religious leaders, what have they said? Oh, this, no, 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 no. He casts out demons and he does all of these things by what? By the power of Beelzebul. And here, among those that would be considered unclean, those that are outside of the people of Israel, they see blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, lame people walking, crippled, pe crippled people healed, all of these things. And what do they do without the testimony of God's revealed word up to that point? They glorify God. And Jesus doesn't what? He doesn't take offense. Right? I mean, there's a whole lot for us to learn right there sometimes too. Right? If God works something through you, sometimes, let's just be honest, even if it's not a whole lot, we want a little bit of what? Credit. Right? Oh, yeah. No, but that's not, that's not how it works. That's not the way it goes. If God would use you to heal or to comfort, or to do whatever it is that he has to do, and, and it becomes obvious to you that he did that, what's our response to be? Thank you, God. I'm amazed that you could use a sinner such as I, redeemed, yes, in Christ, but that you would use words to comfort, or a work that I would do to heal. Thank you. Keep me from the sin of wanting to be recognized for it. Because I want all glory to go to you. Jesus is in this case. I mean, when we see this, and I think we read through it too fast, they glorified the God of Israel, which, which he is. We understand that. But they gave glory to the God of Israel. And what had Jesus said back in Matthew 5.16? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to to me. No, that's not what he said. And they would give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. And as this Gentile crowd gives glory to his Father in heaven, what is he doing? He's rejoicing. He's content. He doesn't have a hang-up of, yeah, but I mean, here's the hands that did. No. There's no doubt he's praising his Father in heaven that these ones are giving glory to this one that the crowds up to this point that he's moved among haven't done. Wouldn't that bring joy to your heart that someone that God calls you to gives glory to the God, God in heaven? And wouldn't you, wouldn't we all, hope we all would stand alongside him and glorify him? So the crowd comes, and they come to him, and they receive of this fullness and of this foretaste. But then Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now, it could be that when they first got there, they had some food and they've run out of food. It could be that they you know, haven't, had it, haven't had anything to eat for three days. At any rate, Jesus identifies the fact that they're what? They're hungry. We're in the middle of nowhere. And if they walk home, they're going to drop. And I don't like that arrangement. So he says... Jesus called his disciples to him and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Compassion moving to action. We, saw, we see this consistently throughout Christ's life. We see it in Matthew 14, 14. He had compassion upon them and healed their sick. That's in the feeding of the 5,000 which leads to the feeling here, his compassion moves him to action. He sees a need. He has the ability to meet the need, and so he acts. His brother James would later write, if you know what someone needs and it's within your ability, you have the ability to satisfy it, for you to not do it would be a sin. Jesus sees the crowd. He knows their need. He has compassion on them. He has the ability to meet the need, and what's he going to do? Meet the need. When we're moved by compassion, do we act in such a way? Again, not with the things we don't have, but with the things we do have. That's, as we imitate Christ, that's one of the ways in which we can imitate him. I know the need. I actually have the ability to do this. Thank you, God, that you've given me the ability. Now let me do it according to your will. So his compassion moves him to action. And here's the thing. What has he done? It seems that he's taught them. It seems that he's healed them. And now there's this wonder, he's going to sustain them. What has he done for you in Christ? He's, he's healed you. He's taught you. He healed you in Christ. He's teaching you in Christ. And he's sustaining you in Christ. Here we see him physically doing what he spiritually does for all of those who are in Christ. He's going to sustain them. He's not just going to teach these Gentiles. He's not just going to heal these Gentiles. Now he's going to feed them. And he's going to feed them in such a way that they're all what? Satisfied. Same words that he used back with, with, with the feeding of the 5,000. So that they all ate, right? And they were satisfied and there were leftovers. So satisfied, there's seven baskets of leftovers. So he is having compassion upon them that's moving into action, and he's going to provide them with this abundant sustenance. 
But in between that, we find out how he does it. Because he says, I mean, and here's another spot where we sometimes, we have a tendency, again, you've heard me say we take the Mickey out of the disciples, right? We, we sort of put them up there and lay them out. Because what do the disciples do here? I mean, at some point, I mean, have you ever been going through something like, I've had an experience like this before. This seems familiar to me. We're in a place, and nobody has any food, and Jesus says, hey, guys, um, let's feed them. And their response is what? Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? No one says, hey, remember that time you made a whole lot out of just a pittance, out of a tiny little bit? And we're going, how can you forget? It just happened. I just read it in like the last two minutes. But we're not that different, are we? How many of you have received something that just blew your mind from Christ? And I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Two years later, some of us are like, no, it's two minutes. Let's just be honest, right? Two minutes later. How are you going to take care of this? <laughs> Weren't you paying attention? Jesus doesn't do that. He's compassionate not just toward the crowd. He's compassionate towards his disciples because all of, I mean, I, maybe, maybe it's just me. But I'd been, are you serious? Don't you know what I can do? I know you know what I can do because I used you before to do what I could do. He doesn't do that. He does not do that. They say, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed us so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And here, it seems that they did have a little bit of food with them. Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground like he did before, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd. So this forgetful troop, he does the same thing, but Jesus, in his compassion towards them, Remember in that there's that proverb that says it's the glory you know, to overlook an offense. It's good to overlook an offense. Here it's like I fed over fifteen thousand people in the wilderness, and this is only four thousand. We're good. He doesn't say a word to him about it. He makes no comment. He's showing compassion and mercy on his disciples too. He's so different from us, isn't it? Isn't he? And and he doesn't keep them from serving. He continues to draw them into the serving. He makes them the hands that take the food that sustains the people that he's taught and that he's healed. And he acts the same way. Have you ever forgotten what Christ has done? The first thing that he did is he brought you to life. He brought you to life. He has healed and he's healing you. He is, has sustained, is sustaining, and will sustain you. And 
and, and we're just, we have a tendency to be so forgetful. This is why in the Old Testament, and I'm not telling you you got to start getting stones and setting them up in your yard and writing down the things that God does for you. I mean, if that's what you want to do and that's how the Spirit leads you to work, yes, I mean, by all means. But those, those stones of remembrance were set up so that the people and the people's children wouldn't forget. Here's how God's been faithful. Because we know how short our memories are. This is why it's a good, it can be a good habit to get into. You know, if some people like to keep a prayer journal, some people like to write things down, some people like it's a steel trap, nothing gets away from it. But people do external things to write down or to remember how has God been faithful? What has He done? So that when I come into a forgetful time or a difficult time, maybe I can flip back to, oh yeah, I remember. So many times in the Psalms, that's what we see the psalmist doing. It's like, here's where I am, but I know what you have done. I mean, that's part of why he's given us his word, so that we might know what he has done, that we might remember it. But he continues to do things within our own lives that I know what you have done. You healed my back. You comforted me in loss. You've given... You've given more than I can than I can list. But I've tried to keep a list because I know how short my memory is. It can be the great big things, or it can be the little tiny things. But it reminds us of who he is and what he's done. Thank you that this medicine has worked. Not that there's any power in the medicine, but there's power in the God who's allowed the medicine to work and for the body to receive it. Don't let us forget, because we have a compassionate Savior. And so He teaches and feeds them. He sustains them. He acts with compassion towards that crowd and towards those disciples. And He does that with us too. Then we're told those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So again, we're looking at probably at least 12,000 people, if not more. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Like Matthew just pulls the curtain. He sends them. He sends them away. And, and here's, 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 here's where it's different a little bit. He sends them away. What we need to know is later on, after Jesus fulfills his mission, and does everything that he's come for, and he's resurrected, and he ascends to the right hand of his Father, and the Spirit is poured out upon his people. Later on, this area, east of the Sea of Galilee, became one of the most fertile lands when the gospel bursts forth. Who had planted that seed? And yet, he would tell his disciples, you're going to do greater things than these. He talked to him about already in Matthew that, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord for workers to go out in the harvest. Later on, after he fulfills his mission, those laborers would go out, and this area would see just tremendous fruitfulness, and the church would burst forth because of the gospel. Some of that work starts here. Because what would they come with? They would come with a story. Wait, that one that we sat on the hill and that we, he, I, I had a blind neighbor who came back seeing and they killed him? 
Yes. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later. And he sent us out. He told us, go into Jerusalem and to Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth to tell others about him that they might have life in him. And life came. He sends them away. And later on, it would be an extremely fertile land. But here's where it's different. Remember, remember what they received at his feet and in his presence was a preview of heaven. What we rejoice in is that there will be a day that his people will no longer be sent away. The preview that they had and what is every believer's in Christ is that he has sent us out as we've come to life in him. There is a day in which He's going to bring all that have been sent out back together to see the fruit that has come through him sending them out. There will be a day that his people will no longer be sent away, but rather will be drawn together. And so we go joyfully where we are sent because we know a peace and a preview of what is to come goes with us because we take him who has overcome death and who brings healing and who brings life and who brings sustenance and vibrance to whosoever will come. If you want to call it the outbreak of heaven, I'm not opposed to that. The outbreak of heaven is present and the church, God's people, are its outpost in the world. That's why we talk about living as we have been called and by the power, not our own power, but by the power of the Spirit that He's given to us. That we would live as those ambassadorships, as those outposts of heaven in the world. Not that we're perfect here, because we're not. But that what they would see would have the essence and the savor and the scent of heaven, of Christ. And so that's what we've been called to be by his power. That when people would be brought, that they'd be brought not to our feet, but to the feet of the one who has given us life, who has fed us and taught us and healed us and continues to feed and to teach and to heal. And he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember who he is what he's done. Yes, over the broad scope of redemptive history, but also where? Within your own life. Because he continues to work. We are quick to forget all that God has done for us in the past. And we grow impatient, don't we? We grow impatient when he does not act in the manner that we desire in the present. It's returning a little bit to that woman last week, right? She had to be patient for a little while, but it came. We sometimes then doubt his love for us, even though he's shown, shown himself good and true in our past. Set up those markers. Set up those memorials. How has he been faithful in the past? And knowing because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that as he's been faithful in the past, so he will be faithful today, and he will be faithful tomorrow, and every tomorrow that comes until his return. And we receive the fullness of that faithfulness. And so 
if that's where you are today, if you're having trouble trusting the Lord this day, remember an occasion in the past in which he provided for you. Thank him for it and ask that he would give you the desire to look for how he is going to work this day and in the days to come. Because if you are in him, you are his child and he will work for his glory and for your good. It will be in his time. And there will be fruit that will come just as there's fruit that came from this area that Christ prepared according to his will in his time and in his way.